0: Sunday morning we're studying 1 Corinthians and a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World just beginning the book. If you're with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And if you just get their attention by waving at them, they'll happily get a Bible into your hands and and, uh, so you can follow along with us as well as to hear the Word of God. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. A single verse this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and and ours, Lord, thank you so much for your word, whether it is in bulk in terms of a chapter, a reading a book, or whether it is something as narrow as a single verse. Lord, we love to be able to turn to it and to tear into it, mine it, and and see what it is that you reveal to us about your heart and your ways and about your plan for our lives. And we do want to live a Christian life in a world that is increasingly pagan. And so we ask that you would use this time in your word this morning to teach us more about that and more completely equip us toward that end. And we ask for this as a work of your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts and our minds this morning. Speak to us. Help us to hear your voice, Lord, in your word And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The church at Corinth was a church that had a lot of problems. And they had more than a lot of problems. It was a church that was a real mess. But all of their problems flowed out of one single great flaw that the church possessed and what church has a single great flaw or any flaw in it except it is also the characteristic of the people that make up that church in order to turn a problemed christian church around or to turn around a troubled christian life it's important to differentiate between problems or circumstances uh, or challenges that are symptoms as opposed to the core problem from which all of the symptoms flow the root problem that is at the core of everything it's important to differentiate between the symptom and the core symptoms and the core problem certainly true in medicine Go to a medical professional. We expect this of medical professionals. That as we tell them of all of the symptoms that we're experiencing, we don't expect them if we have maybe five or ten new symptoms in our life. This is if we've never experienced this before. My heart is beating faster here and I got this and then all of these things. And we don't want them to give us a prescription for each and every one of those things. If it's unnecessary... We want a medical professional to sit and to listen to everything that we're laying out and to try to discover whether all of these symptoms are simply symptomatic of a single core problem, a greater problem in our life. I think about counseling, and we certainly do some counseling as pastors. And you sit down with someone and their life is falling apart, maybe in ten different directions at the moment. And so you listen and you listen and you pray and you listen and you pray and you listen some more as they're laying everything out to you. And so often as you're listening to so many of the problems that have mounted up in their life that are really undoing them, you come to realize that, yes, there are all of these problems and they look unrelated, and then there comes that moment in the conversation where you realize, click, you see the core problem from which all of these symptom problems flow out, and then you realize that's what we have to address. And we realize that this is true of many other areas in life, business, and on and on. We could talk about it. But we realize that if we simply deal with the symptom problems and we never get to the core, then we will never ever solve a person's problems or the problems of a church. But if we discover what the core problem is, the central problem, you address that, heal that, then all of the other symptom problems go away as a result. And so it is spiritually. The church at Corinth had a lot of problems. They had division, they had pride, infighting. It was just terrible. Carnality, they were a church made up of Christians who were just dominated by their flesh. They had a very lax moral uh, uh, morality within the church and a lax attitude toward morality within the culture and what should be allowed within the church. They allowed the teaching of false doctrine and uh, many other things like that. And the church at Corinth very simply was not influencing the world for God as God calls us to as Christians, but instead they were being influenced by the world. And they, they had the, the entire thing upside down, backwards. Not because they were trying hard to reach the world, and to change the world and being unsuccessful at it they weren't trying at all they simply were trying to find a Christianity that was somewhere between something that would please God and yet uh, not create too much of a ruckus uh, in the world or any kind of difficulty for their life but all of these problems that they had going on merely symptoms of their root problem and the root problem is identified in verse 2 where the Holy Spirit does through the Apostle Paul what the Holy Spirit did through Jesus in his writing of the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, where in each of those seven letters Jesus gave that church, each of those churches, a self-description. He told them something about himself that they had forgotten or ceased to emphasize and as a result of it, five of the seven churches were going in the wrong direction. And so when you read the seven letters to the seven churches, understanding what their core problem was, two of the churches he said nothing negative about them at all. But five of the seven he did. And the key to understanding their problem and their core problem was to understand what is Jesus reminding them of about himself simply because they had forgotten that. And in verse 2, the Apostle Paul reminded them of something very foundational that they had completely forgotten, that in this fallen world, this pagan world we live in, we are called to be saints. God has called us as Christians to be saints. And you notice that he reminded them that they were the church of God, which is at Corinth. And that word church in the original language is the Greek word ekklesia, and it means called out ones. And as Christians, we have been called out of a kingdom of darkness, and we have been called into a kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God. I think it's important to realize that when we speak of church related to as Christians, that we're speaking not about a building. It's okay to say, you know, I'm not going to make too much of it. It's okay to say, I'm going to church tonight or I'm going to church tomorrow. Would you like to come with me? And it means you're going to come to 4300 American Avenue in Modesto, California, 945, whatever. Too many numbers. Took it as far as I could. 95356. Five, so we talk about a building in that way. We don't have to cease to do that. As long as we realize that you are the church, that I am the church, the church is a living thing. It is the people that congregate within the building. We are the church. We are the called out ones. In a technical sense, if someone were to call the church during the week and uh, make contact with one of our secretaries or receptionists and say, uh, Where's the church located? So the receptionist would have to say, I don't have the slightest idea. They're all over the place. And it's good to be reminded of that. We are the church. I think it's also, we want to note that the church at Corinth is called the Church of God, and that's critical. In other words, the church belongs to God. The church is blood bought. A church service like this should never be what I come up with or clever men come up with in terms of what a church is supposed to, a church service is supposed to be or accomplish or look like or who and what is to be honored. This isn't something that God has given to us, and in defining all of that is in play. God tells us in His Word what the church is supposed to be, what a church service is supposed to be, but He also tells us what our individual lives are supposed to be like in the world. We're not free to define our own Christianity or what it's going to look like in my life, or to what degree I'm going to be obedient to it or disobedient to it, or what I'm going to emphasize and de-emphasize. We don't have that freedom. Our lives belong to God, and our lives are to characterize what He wants our lives to characterize, and the church service is to as well. It is a church service and a local church is to be holy and it is to be different from the pagan culture around it. And the church is never to become like the pagan world that it is in the middle of. It is to be an influence for God in that pagan culture and we cannot be that influence unless we are different, unless we are holy. And the church... Should never agonize over this or wring our hands over the fact that what we teach in terms of morals and values and definitions of right and wrong and sin and righteousness, the truth about the meaning and the purpose of life, the message of how God, uh, of how to be saved and how to be accepted by God, all of this that we teach and we proclaim is to be completely contrary to the pagan culture all around us because God intends it to be that way. The church is not to be the world light, the way the beers are developed today. We are not to be accommodating to the darkness of the world or the ways of the world and its morality and its values and its perspectives and its entertainments. God intends us to be different and he intends us to be different for a good reason, which we'll discuss in just a moment. But a church is to be holy and it's to be known for holiness and the community that we are in. To save my life, I don't understand why we as Christians possess such an inferiority complex over Christianity, over the promises of the Bible, over what God makes a human life into as opposed to what the world makes a human life into that we would ever think that we could make it better by taking two steps or a hundred steps back toward the world. He reminded them also in verse 2 that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And the word sanctified is hagiazo in the Greek. And we get our word holy from that uh, word. And it means to be holy. It means to be set apart. But it also means to be set apart for God's exclusive use, for holy purposes. And when we became Christians, we were sanctified. Yes, we were forgiven. Yes, we received everlasting life. But at the same moment in time in which we gave our life to Christ, we also became sanctified. We gave our lives to God in order for Him to use our lives for His purposes. And when a person comes to God in the right way, where we realize what the world made us into, and, hey, listen, we're no innocent victim. We were happy to partake in the sin, in the debauchery, we, what the world made us into, what the world caused us to become a slave to. And then one day we find out about a kingdom of God. We find out there's an alternative to the life that we're living. And we come and we into a place like this, somewhere in this community or around the world. We give our life to Christ. And when we do so, there ought to be, and I hope there is within our lives, a sense of privilege, of pinch me, I can't believe that I have the privilege of being able to live a life that is completely different from the life I was once living. Most of us come to know the Lord because we wanted to escape the life that, We had made for ourselves and our decisions. And I think that there's another group of people that come into the body of Christ... They become Christians, and they happily lay their lives before God and say, God, I've wasted my 20 years, I've wasted my 30 years, 40 years, my three score and ten, and I give you my life now for the rest of the days of my life to use for your glory and bring some good out of my life before I go to heaven. And there's another group that comes to know the Lord, and... Maybe their life wasn't all sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Maybe the world looked at them and said, What in the world do you need to get saved for? You're the nicest, most moral person in our whole neighborhood. But we come to know the Lord, those of you who come from that kind of a background, and you realize the capacity that was in your heart for evil, for a love for darkness, a love for sin, a disgust for self, all of the things that we keep hidden from other people, but the enormous effort that's required in doing that. And while we realize that, no, we did not engage in those sins in the way that other people did, we fully had the capacity to do so. If we had only been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then we come to know the Lord and give our life to the Lord. And we thank Him for the privilege of being able to give our lives to Him as a living sacrifice to now use for His glory and for His purposes in this life and in this world. Paul wrote later to this church at Corinth and he said, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Romans chapter 6. And don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. God, here is my life as an instrument of righteousness. It's been an instrument of unrighteousness all of my life. Now it is an instrument of righteousness. I give it to you, Lord, and I ask you to use me in a powerful way in this world. And then he reminded them that they were called to be saints. That word saints is hagios. Again, it means holy. It means to be set apart. And a saint is one whose life has been set apart or set aside for God's use and for God's purposes. And every single Christian is a saint. Sometimes we think about saints as being some extraordinary Christian uh, Roman Catholic Church makes people saints after they've died and then a certain number of miracles are done in their name or whatever that the, the criteria is. It's completely contrary to the teaching of the Bible. The Bible teaches that every single one of us as Christians are saints. Sometimes we think of somebody as a saint as being someone who's perfect. Even a Christian will sometimes say, listen, I'm no saint. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't think that. That's to think way too low. We are saints in the sense that our lives have now been set aside unto God for his use and for his purposes. Now, the problem with using words like holiness and using words like saints is that sometimes we can have trouble getting our heads around it. Uh, practically speaking, you know, to say, what in the world does that look like? And you might ask a Christian what it means to be holy, what it comes to your mind when you think of what it means to be a saint. And oftentimes a person will know that it's a good thing, but many times they don't know what that's supposed to translate into practically in, in, uh, in, in, a, in life. And the problem with that is if we don't know what we're aiming at, then we have no hope of hitting it. And if we don't know what we're aiming at and we don't know what holiness looks like, then we're going to become victims of religious men who will be happy to come in and make a definition for us of their own ideas of what it means to be holy or to be set aside uh, unto God, their own ideas about what holiness looks like in a pagan culture. The result of that is legalism, which only makes things uh, that much worse the fact of the matter is, I say it often because until I can say it a better way, that's what I do. The holiest life that's ever been lived in human history is Jesus' life. Perfection. Perfect holiness. In action, in word, in non-word, in motive, in doing, the saying. All of these things, everything about his life was the perfection of holiness. And we need to run every definition of holiness that we've either been raised with as Christians or that we come up with on our own and impose it upon our own life and say, I'm holy now as a result of doing this or being this. We need to run every definition of holiness through the life of Jesus and his teaching and then disregard all of the man-made definitions of holiness that don't look like him. If Jesus didn't say it or do it, if we can't imagine Jesus saying it or doing it, then that something is not true holiness. That is not a difference that makes a difference. That's what God's holiness does. Man's holiness makes me different in the world you got to give people credit for that. It makes a person stand out as different from the rest of the world. The problem is, is when man comes up with his definitions of holiness and his legalism, all he does is make us different, but not in a way that makes a difference in the world. And we want to be different, but we want to be different in a way that impacts our family and impacts our neighborhood and our city and our world. And only Jesus is the definition of holiness or being different that is a difference that makes a difference in the world and in people's lives, where they look at it and they say, that isn't something that some religious person is trying to do around me. That person, the quality of that life, is so dramatically different that I can't help but take notice of it, respect it, even if I am not ready to become a Christian yet. And it makes a difference the way that Jesus, to live a life that looks like Christ. Jesus prayed in John 17 to the Father. He said, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He was speaking concerning us as his disciples. Perhaps you've heard sometime in your uh, life, heard Christians uh, being spoken of as, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And that's what Jesus is saying that prayer in John chapter 17, that while we are physically present in this world, we do not share its values, we don't share its morals, its priorities, its goals, its definitions of right and wrong and good and bad, we don't accept its speculations about God, we don't accept any of it, and we live a different kind of life, a Christian life, in the midst of that pagan world. In that same prayer, Jesus also prayed to the Father, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Because, and Jesus prayed that because just as the Father sent Jesus into the world with a work to do, so too Jesus has sent us into this world with a work to do. There is work to do here for God. That's the only reason... We're around us Christians. otherwise he just why would he put us through the aggravation of this world? If there wasn't something he still wanted to accomplish through our lives, when the glory of heaven is just waiting for us? I think that many Christians think of holiness only in terms of the things that we don't do, and we fail to see that sanctification is also expressed in doing as well. A Christian life that fails to influence the world for holiness is not holy in a way that looks like Christ. And in order to influence a world for the Lord Jesus, we need to be in interacting with the world around us. And Jesus wants us to be in the middle of things. He doesn't want us living in monasteries. And so he puts us in these various places that he puts us in the world and in contact with various people. And you've been carefully chosen by him for that environment. You say, Oh, come on, please stop. I've been carefully chosen for anything. You've been carefully chosen by him for that spot and that family and that neighborhood and that workplace and that school. So churches are to be holy. And individual Christians are to be holy as well because a local church will never be more holy than the holiness of the Christians who attend it. And he reminded them in verse 2 that they were saints with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, the Apostle Paul is communicating that this is what is expected of every Christian that this is what is to be true of every Christian anywhere and everywhere they are in the world. No matter what city we live in, no matter what neighborhood we live in, no matter what family we're a part of, no matter what our age, no matter what our background, no matter what. And the church at Corinth had forgotten the importance of holiness, of living a different kind of life in the midst of the pagan world around them. And so Paul gives them a reminder. And it's something we as Christians desperately need to be reminded of today because the same mistakes are being made everywhere today in the body of Christ. today in some churches and i'm not i'm not looking to bash the body of christ but i have to speak candidly in the light of could end the sermon but we wouldn't understand how it applies to our lives the way we need to and today in some churches and in many individual christians lives They have bought into the lie that we can best reach the world by becoming like the world. And that's as big a lie as you'll ever believe, the sight of heaven. Trying to communicate, they bought into the lie of trying to communicate to a pagan world that there really isn't very much difference between them and us. Think about that. Think about the sacrifice on the cross, the price paid to live a holy life. Think about the life of Jesus. And then to believe, and to believe enough to then communicate or give the impression that they believe that there really isn't much of a difference between us and the pagan world. And when you believe that lie, it's going to have an impact. And so the church services then are designed to cater to the carnality of man, the flesh of man. Man becomes the focus instead of God being the focus. Why? Because who is the focus in the world? Man, I, me, myself. And so Christianity becomes this thing where Jesus came into the world to make good men better rather than dead men alive. The services are even designed to flatter and to exalt man and individual men and become personality-driven, excitement-driven, everything but substance-driven. I ask myself when I see this kind of thing, and I see it regularly, people trying to make church exciting by some environmental thing that they do or some exciting personality. But what person is more exciting than God? And what life is more exciting to the child of God than the Christian life if a person has truly been born again? Why do I feel the need to spice this up? Why do I feel the need to carry this kind of weight related to that? And then another thing happens within that kind of a church, a Corinthian church, is that the plain truth of God's Word on hot button subjects are avoided in sermons or the pastors or the leaders they choose to deny God's stand on a particular subject in order to align with the views of the pagan world in order to gain the world's approval and this kind of thing is everywhere thankfully A recent fad of two or three years ago among some younger pastors using profanity in the pulpit in order to get the world to see that Christians are edgy too. Christians aren't as holy as you think they are. Unfortunately, that face was short lived but it speaks of the pressure that Christians feel to somehow the the unwillingness to accept the fact that God intends us to be different in a Christ-like way in this world. The recent trend of some young pastors is a little longer-lived, a different trend of making the drinking of alcohol a cool and a trendy part of Christianity, of their lives and their congregations, where you go to the church and you're invited to the church banquet or some kind of a church potluck, or you're even invited to become a part of leadership, and you go to the pastor's house and you walk in, and there are all the leaders in the church Instead of being told where the coffee is or the refreshment might be, they're greeted with someone with a beer in their hand and told the keg is in the back and go ahead and get yourself a glass before we start the meeting. Now, who can take that seriously? The emphasis that's given on that. I'd rather have four people in this church attending this church and calling it their church home and be a place where someone who struggles with the sin of alcohol can come and be safe than to pastor a church of 10,000 where that church is now dangerous and a stumbling block to the weakness of someone's flesh. These are things you don't have to worry about when you take holiness and Christlikeness seriously. I read a newspaper article some time ago, and it was written about one of these pastors and the whole drinking thing and the micro beers and all this stuff. And the article cast him as a new breed of pastor who likes to end the day with a couple of beers just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. Think about that just like everybody else. What are we thinking? And the message is, hey, listen, don't think of me as too holy. I'm a lot more like you than you think. I'll tell you, I'm thankful for every older man and woman that took holiness seriously in their life when I was a child. And I got to see something different in their life. And even as a young adult, and even to this day, such a life challenges me and does something good in my life. This whole thing of becoming like the world, it's the acting as if holiness were a bad thing and as if worldliness is a better thing. But I never read of Jesus using profanity. I can't find it in the Bible. I can't even find him using slang for profanity. And I never read of Jesus having a couple of beers at the end of the day in order to take the edge off of a hard day. What I read about Jesus doing is going aside to pray, which makes me wonder how much prayer is going on today in communion with God. And all of this is a great mistake. It will never produce Christ-like Christians. It will only produce carnal Christians. But somehow, this idea that we can reach the world by becoming like the world, we can change the world by becoming like the world, it's deeply ingrained in us. That's why we fall prey to it. Jesus pointedly warned us against it. Matthew chapter 5, he said, You're the salt of the earth. And if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Then it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. And let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He calls us the salt of the earth. Salt was used in that day as a preservative against corruption and rot. And he says, that's what we are as Christians spiritually. We are a preservative against the moral corruption, the spiritual corruption of the world around us. We're not intended to accommodate it. Salt arrests corruption because it is a polar opposite of corruption. It is distinctive, it is different than rot in corruption. And that's what makes it valuable. If it was corruption, it can't stop corruption. Our value is that we're distinctive, that we are different, that we are holy. And it is only a holy people, a Christ-like people, that are going to make any difference in standing against a growing immorality in the world. And Jesus warned that if we ever lose our saltiness, our flavor... If we ever become like the world instead of distinctive from the world, in his own words, he said, we'll become good for nothing in terms of influencing for God, but only good for being thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, those are strong words by Jesus, but they're needed words, and it's the truth. You can have a church of several thousand people. It can be the most popular church in town, and it can be making zero impact in the community on a personal level for Christ in that community. He says, We're the light of the world. This tells us that the world that we're living in is not only corrupt and it's rotting, but it's also spiritually and morally dark. And so we bring a spiritual and a moral light into the darkness of the world that we live in. And you you get physical light if you're in a dark room long enough and somebody flips a light on. It's like, turn that light off. (laughs) You, You can't encapsulate the early days of my Christian life in my workplace better than that. Turn that light off. I mean, God changed my life dramatically in an instant. And not everybody was happy about it. And I didn't have to put anyone in a headlock, corner them, you know, with, you know, a big hammer or something like that and say, you're going to listen to the gospel, I'm going to clobber you. All you have to do is live a life like Christ. Stop talking the way that we once talked. Stop acting the way that we once acted. All of these things. And in the same way that light brings discomfort to the eyes of someone who is used to darkness, our lives will bring conviction to other people's lives. But that conviction is the start of coming to know God and beginning that path to coming to know God. But Jesus said that's the way that it's going to be. Our lives will create discomfort. It will expose what is dark. Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. And in his current absence, so to speak, he says that we are to shine as lights on his behalf in this world. And you cannot live the Christian life without causing unholy people to be uncomfortable. Would you believe that? In your heart. Just accept that. We cannot live a Christ-like life without causing unholy people to be uncomfortable. But that discomfort is the start of their journey to coming to know Christ. And that's what makes it worth it. They see there's a different kingdom, a different kind of person that makes up the kingdom of God. He said, we're a lampstand. You have a lampstand, you put a lamp, or a lamp, you put a lamp on a lampstand, you don't put a basket over it, you don't hide that. He says, by living a holy life, we are providing something very valuable to the world, light, spiritual light, moral light. So why would we hide that? And if we live a holy life, then God's then people are going to see our good works and ultimately glorify our Father who is in heaven. And that is how we influence a world for God. It is not our problem to change this world for God. It is not my problem to reach this city. That's God's problem. It is my problem and your problem, so to speak, To simply live the life that God has called us to live. And then allow God to make much of that life in our doing and in our speaking. So often we think we just all this pressure, we've got to reach the city, we've got to reach the world. There's a great thing to seek the Lord in prayer. Lord, what do you want to do to speak to our city, to reach our city? All of that is good, but we don't carry the weight of that. And if I feel like I've got to get them somehow reach them, I've got to do God's job in their life, then we can end up compromising who and what we are in order to get them into the door. And then we do a disservice to them if they run into something different than Christ once they get here. And we live a holy life under what motivation? The motivation of the Holy Spirit to be like Christ. But we do so as debtors. Someone lived a Christ-like life and was instrumental And us coming to know the Lord. They shared the gospel with us. They lived a life that was consistent with that gospel, consistent with the Word of God. And then God used that to begin bringing us to the Lord. And because someone or some group of people did that for us, we are debtors now to then do that for other people. The Bible says that everywhere in this world today, God is working in the lives of every man, woman, and child to bring them to Jesus for salvation. That's what He's doing. All day, every day, in every human life, That's what he's working to do. But he wants to have lives, Christian lives, that are distinctive and different that he can point people to and say, I will make that. I will make you into that. You know the change that I brought about in her life and in his life. You know the miracle that is, the life that they're living right now. I'll do the same thing in you. And there's a whole world of people that when they come into God, contact with God through our lives. They are not looking for a watered down version of Christ or Christianity. They are looking for a Christianity in all of its robustness, in all of its difference, in all of its holiness. It will not put them off at all. It will be what makes Christianity attractive to them. And we need to realize that that group of people are alive in this world. And they have a right to see that kind of person and then come to that kind of church and church service. I'll tell you, when I became a Christian, when I finally got sick of the world and more sick of myself, I wasn't looking for some in-between thing or some something that would change me on the edges. I was looking for a completely different kind of life. And I found it in Christ. And I found it in the church that I started to attend at that critical moment in my life of settling the issue of Jesus' lordship in my life. And they're out there waiting And a person that hasn't been brought to that place where they're wanting something different, they're wanting to live a different kind of life, Jesus is attractive to them. Holiness is attractive to them. If they haven't reached that particular point in their life, then there's a greater work of the Holy Spirit to be done for them than to appreciate Christ and what he has done for them. But that group is out there looking. And God intends that they would see that kind of difference in our lives. And what's required in all of this, the call to holiness, behind all of it, is a desire for people to come to know Jesus and to be saved. If I don't care about the world... If I don't have a burden for people to come to know Christ, then I will just settle into my little carnal, lukewarm, petty, small, pathetic life with my fire insurance on my way to heaven. But anybody who has a true burden and concern for the souls of men and women and children in the same way that someone had a burden for our soul is going to take holiness seriously in order that people might see the kingdom of God in us and through us and see evidence of what God is able to do and willing to do in their life as well. We will never ever reach the world or influence the world by becoming like the world. We will reach the world and influence the world by living a life like Christ, by simply obeying God's word. And I think that sometimes it's good to proclaim the truth out loud. It does something good in us to say it. So maybe you'd be comfortable in repeating after me. I'm supposed to be holy. I'm supposed to be different. Holiness is a good thing, not a bad thing. Holiness is a privilege. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of holiness. Not to just be different, but to be different in a way that looks like Christ. To be different in a way that makes a difference. That gives your Holy Spirit something to work with, Lord, in drawing people to you and to your kingdom. And, Lord, we pray in the privacy of our own lives and our own sphere of influence that if in any small degree we have bought into the lie of trying to reach the world by becoming like the world or trying to reach a person for you by becoming like their carnal, sinful self, that you would point that out in our lives. Make it clear to us, Lord, that we might confess it quickly and repent of it. This morning we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, to embrace holiness, to embrace the beauty of the life that unfolds, Lord, and to embrace it for the hope that it brings, Lord, to those who are looking for hope and meaning and difference in life and wanting to see it in someone's life before they commit themselves to it themselves. And Lord, we pray that you would make us those kind of people. Would you remove any inferiority complex that we have in this culture, Lord, over being Christians? or being holy as if something else in this world can improve that or compare to it, eradicate it from our lives, burn it away from our lives, Lord, and give us the faith and the joy of embracing this Christian life and, again, the privilege of being able to live it. Give us that kind of a high and beautiful way of looking at things. And anywhere that any of us are living, even an inch below that, Lord, we pray that you would burn that off of our lives this morning as well. We confess to you that we're living the greatest life a human being can live, and we give you praise for the Savior and the blood of the Savior that made it possible. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you